You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. Matt, this is probably our last show of the regular season. I think the next time we do this, it'll maybe be right after the wildcard games. So that's exciting, right? I mean, the next time we talk, things are going to look extremely different around baseball. Yeah, it's true. We will uh, we'll be down be down to eight. We'll be down um, to eight. And right now we still don't know who the uh, the 10th team is, but the, uh, the Brewers and Cardinals barely hang on to a, a shot at the wild card game in the National League. And we don't know for sure if the Red Sox are going to win the East. We don't know for sure if Cleveland's going to win the number one seed. We know probably, but those things are still up in the air. So we have a lot of things I think we're going to get into today that are going to be um, in some way relevant to the postseason, hopefully. The first one's going to be very cool. We're going to kind of rethink the way you look at pitcher versus batter matchups. And then we're going to go into uh, who had the best giant air quotes bad games of the season. This is going to be extremely Miguel Cabrera-related. Uh, talk a little bit about how we're going to see some changing postseason pitching strategies. And our Hall of Famer this week will be Jose Altuve, who set two records in three innings the other day, two StatCast records in three innings the other day, which uh, I think that was pretty fun, and we'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about pitcher versus batter matchups. So when we get to the postseason, you are going to hear on broadcasts, and you're going to read in articles that a hitter is, let's say, 8 for 10 against the pitcher. That means he owns the pitcher, uh, and sometimes that will even be used to define lineup decisions. We all know batter, uh, managers talk about this. And I think we've always known forever that those are kind of bogus stats, right? They're small sample. Going from, like, you know, being 3 for 5 to 4 for 5 could be a bloop. It could be the guy's last pitch before he goes for elbow surgery the next day, right? But there's not meaning here. And to, to, bar, to take an extreme example from something you might actually see in the wild card game is you might see Bartolo Colon face Matt Holliday. And Bartolo Colon today is very different than Bartolo Colon 10 years ago. Right. And Matt Holliday today is very different than Matt Holliday 10 years ago. So to use a... To use their matchups together from like 10 years ago as data for how they're going to fare against each other today is just sort of silly. Yeah, so I, we thought about this, and, and I figured, well, over the last three years, we have lots of StatCast data. And what we have is expected batting average and expected weighted on base. And so what we can maybe do is try to find some of these matchups where you know a pitcher is dominant or a hitter is dominant and say, well, well hang on a second. The expected numbers actually say something different. So we have a couple of examples here. But before we get into them, a very quick aside about one of our favorite topics on this show. I believe uh, a couple of weeks Weeks ago, we were talking about Matt's favorite pitcher, Luis Perdomo, and Matt said something like, I don't seek out Luis Perdomo facts, they seek me out. And the following story, I swear to God, is true. So I looked up over the three seasons of StatCast every single pitcher versus hitter matchup where they'd face each other at least five times. We're talking about like 17,000 different matchups here. And I sorted them by the largest difference between expected weighted on base and actual weighted on base. And the largest difference at the top of the list, and I couldn't believe it when I saw it, was Luis Perdomo versus Ian Desmond. Uh, and Luis Perdomo has given up an 800 batting average to, to Ian Desmond, four for five, uh, with two walks. And the expected number is like 600 points lower than that. And that's really neither here nor there. It has nothing to do with the playoffs. But anytime Luis Perdomo is on top of yet another list, I have to you know, relate that to everybody. It speaks to the 2018 breakout potential of Luis Perdomo. <laughs> but he will not be in the postseason. Uh, so let's move on to topics that are going to be relevant for the next month. Yes, we've gotten our Luis Perdomo fix uh, out of the way. So we want to go through a couple examples here. The first one is not going to be most likely a playoff matchup. Um, but it's just the extreme example of this concept. And this is Kyle Schwarber versus Adam Wainwright. And then we'll get 
into some more potential playoff matchups. I really like this one, and this is just looking at regular season, not when they saw each other in the playoffs. Kyle Schwarber's 0 for 7 against Adam Wainwright, right? He is has, that for his career this year? Uh, for his career. Okay. 0 for 7. It's, it's not terribly much of a difference, I guess, because he missed all last year anyway. Um, he has never had a base hit, so you might say to yourself, well, Adam Wainwright, he owns Kyle Schwarber. And this goes back to your earlier point. Adam Wainwright is down like four miles an hour from where he was uh, two years ago. So, you know, what, what does that have in, uh, any kind of predictive value anyway? Uh, but I, I actually, I kind of looked at this and I, I said, well, okay, well, what did this actually mean? Uh, over seven with two walks. Well, his expected batting average was 700. It was 706. So the narrative going into if there was a matchup between these two guys would be like, well, Wainwright owns Schwarber. Whereas I might look at this and say, well, wait a minute. Expected batting average of 706. I know there hasn't been any hits, but Schwarber's going to hit the ball hard. Something good is probably going to happen here. I think that's cool. That's new. Yeah, that's awesome. And as a reminder, expected batting average is taking in the batted ball inputs. It's talking about the quality of contact, the exit velocity, exit velocity and launch angle, and what is the expected outcome when you have certain um, specific combinations of exit velo and launch angles. So that, like, we're basically taking bloops out of the equation and basically taking atom balls out of the equation. We're saying, okay, forget about the results. What was the performance of the batter? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And we can do the same thing with expected weighted on base. And just for some reference there, the, the average weighted on base is like 320 this year. Uh, and the expected weighted on base for Schwarber versus Wainwright is 846. That's not even video game numbers. That's beyond that. You couldn't do that in a video game. Uh, and so I took a look at, okay, what were these? And we're not going to change the walks. They were two. We're not going to change the strikeouts. I mean, those are real things that happen. Uh, but there were five batted balls, uh, all of which turned into outs. And I'm not going to bore you with, like, every single number here, but I thought these were really interesting. Four of the five batted balls that turned into outs were hit at 103 miles an hour or harder, <laughs> which is amazing. And if you look at I watched the video for all of these, and, and they're fantastic. One had an expected uh, uh, hit probability of 92% or an expected batting average of 920 it was hit 385 feet to center, you know, like caught on the warning track. Uh, one was hit at 105 miles an hour, uh, just crushed, but it was counted as, a, as an error. It was a liner, like right through the, the third baseman who's actually shifted over. Uh, one of these was just a smashed line drive, 108 miles an hour, right to the first baseman. That's the atom ball that you were talking about. So I don't know, I, I find that fascinating. And if you, you think about the one that went 385 feet, it was hit at 105 miles an hour. It was hit at a 25-degree launch angle. You might think to yourself, well, hey, those are pretty favorable numbers. I, I want that. Of every single time we've seen that combination happen, 84% of those are home runs. What was now in this case, because he hit it to like dead center and you know whoever was out there made a nice catch. But I think that's really, that's interesting and useful. So that's an extreme example. We're not going to see those guys in the playoffs, um, but hopefully that gets kind of the point across of this concept, I think. Yeah, for sure. So now let's let's look at some of the, the matchups that we are, we could potentially see in the postseason. I think I'm fascinated by this concept. It's something we're going to be using in our coverage all October. It's something you'll see a lot of on the, the at StatCast Twitter account, sort of calling out these extreme differences when they happen. I mean, a lot of the times the actual performance and the Expected performance are very similar, but you know it's when you see those big divergences. And to be clear, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's still a small sample size. It's still not a perfect tool, but it's it's much better, it's much better information than just it tells you more. Yeah, and and when, especially when we get to the uh, Mookie Betts example, it will definitely tell you more, as we'll talk about in a second. So I could have talked about this for five hours, but what I've done here is I've taken uh, two examples of you know unfortunate hitters and two examples of unfortunate pitchers uh, for ma matchups that could possibly happen. Now, the first one is a Rockies-Diamondbacks matchup, most likely going to be the wild card game. I don't know if Braden Shipley is actually going to face Carlos Gonzalez, but these guys have matched before. Uh, Braden Shipley has faced Carlos Gonzalez, and Carlos Gonzalez is 0 for 5 with one walk, okay? That's not great. You're probably thinking, well, he owns him, but the expected batting average there, 501 
the expected win on the base, 7-12. I mean, I know we're only talking about a couple of plate appearances here, but that is the largest difference of any potential playoff matchup I could find. It's an over 570-point difference in expected weighted on base versus actual weighted on base. Well, you've got a 390-foot out in there and a 403-foot <laughs> out in there. So well, that's exactly that, right. Some that, of the, the story sort of tells themselves, right? I mean, you know, as, as Matt said, a 390-foot flyout, a 403-foot flyout. Uh, one of them was just a, a crest liner right to the shortstop. You know, the shifts involved here. But the point being, is he 0 for 5? Yes. Uh, but did the pitcher dominate him? Were those five strikeouts? Were those five weak tap-outs to the mound? Uh, no, they were not. So I don't know if that's a matchup we'll actually see, but I thought that one was interesting. Uh, let's say we see a Cubs versus Diamondbacks matchup, which could be actually pretty fascinating, and uh, it's definitely possible. Robbie Ray against Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant is 0 for 6. Now, one of those is a strikeout, so he's put the ball in play five times. Uh, he's got, a, obviously, a zero, a zero batting average and a zero WOBA. An expected batting average of 459. Expected WOBA of 532 and I want to focus on one of these he hit about 105 miles an hour at a 37 degree launch angle that also sounds really good that was a 390 foot out that combination is a home run 73 percent of the time 398 398 uh, excuse me yes three it's a home you run sure so, change the it's a it's a it's a home run 73 percent of the time and the point being it's an out. It looks like he did poorly, but he actually crushed the ball pretty well. That just happened to be to the deepest part of that ballpark. For sure. Uh, we can look at this the other way, too. So let's look at some unfortunate pitchers. Now, perhaps the Rockies advance in the wild card game and they face the Dodgers, and maybe we'll see Chad Bettis, and maybe he'll face Yasiel Puig. That would be an interesting matchup. Four for eight, right? And again, none of these are huge sample sizes, but, you know, that's sort of the point. Uh, so Puig is hitting 500. Four for eight. He's also been hit twice. But his expected batting average is only 228. So you might say to yourself, well, that's a 500 average. He crushes Chad Bass. Well, let's look at some of those hits. One of those was a 75-mile-an-hour single that the second baseman probably should have come up with. It was only a 37% hit probability. One of those was an 86-mile-an-hour, giant air quotes, double that had a 14% hit probability that went right off of Nolan Arenado's glove. He doesn't catch actually everything, just most <laughs> exactly. things. Exactly. If all the players out, <laughs> it just adds another level of good fortune to it for Puig, that it was Arenado of all players whose glove it bounced off of. And a 29% seeing eye single up the middle. Uh, so, and then one of the hits was actually pretty, pretty decent. But I've just described three of those four hits as, you know, I don't want to say luck, but let's say good fortune for Yasiel Puig. And then this is my favorite example, especially because uh, Astros and Red Sox seems like a pretty likely matchup that we could see. Colin McHugh against Mookie Betts. Colin McHugh has allowed Mookie Betts a 750 batting average. That's six for eight with two walks. Uh, he's only allowed him a 311 expected batting average. I mean, that changes the narrative right there. Did you hit 311 against the guy or did you hit 750 against the guy? This is my favorite one because I looked up these plays and the very first one I saw was a double, a 1% hit probability double hit at 73 miles an hour. I was like, how in the world does that happen? So I watched this play. Ball was hit straight up. Carlos Correa lost it in the sun. The ball basically hit him in the face on the way back down. So I don't know how, I guess, charitable scoring. I mean, that should be an error. You, you touched it, right? I consider that an error, but it was counted as a double. And I mean, anyway. Hey, you don't need to get me started on errors. I think errors <laughs> should be abolished, but that's, uh, that's a separate podcast. So, and then I saw he had a 12% double all right not a, just a 12 percent hit probability double hit at 84 miles an hour and it was essentially a you know hard-ish bloop to left field in houston and we know the left field fence in houston is basically among the most shallow in baseball in or, or fenway and that's an easy out in most places but in fen in uh, houston it was a double he also had a 20 percent single against for reasons i have not been able to understand the albert pool shift which we're going to get into a lot in a minute by which i mean three fielders on the left side of the ball uh, but against someone who's fast, 
right? I mean, he's a right-handed hitter, and they overloaded it on the left side, but he's fast. They usually do this for slower players. So did he hit it? Did he hit it? He hit it right where second base was supposed to be. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that's cool about that um, matchup, as you sort of alluded to, the Astros-Red Sox matchup, which is, I guess, not quite locked up, but it's essentially... Well, the, Cleveland won just before we came yeah. in. So I think that gave them an the, extra game over. They're now at 100 wins. Astros are at 98. And it's possible and Cleveland, owns, and Cleveland owns a tiebreaker. At this point, I think, basically, Astros need to win out. And, and Cleveland's playing the White Sox, the I White think. Sox. So it, it's probably going to be Cleveland number one. Anyway, point being, those two ballparks have, like, the most distinct left fields and very similar left fields in the sense that they're, like, short with high walls. So, theoretically, you have two teams that are kind of, I don't want to say built in similar ways, but they definitely certainly have hitters and pitchers who are used to build pitching to a, a very specific dimension that's like, those are the only two parks that are like that, I guess. Is there any, am I forgetting a team that has a left field wall like that? Uh, no, I don't think you are. I, you're right. That's a, it's in a very extreme series. Um, and I think it might be the one I'm looking forward to the most. I think that's going to be a lot of fun with those two teams. I mean, they're two, it's extremely talented teams. There were teams that were supposed to be good all year. They were good all year. Um, the Red Sox haven't locked up their division yet, but probably will. And they've never met before in the postseason, which also adds, like, you know, you see, we see a lot of the same teams year after year. So it's, like, always fun when you get a matchup that you've never seen before. At least to me it is. Right. So, uh, anyway, this is uh, just kind of an introduction to a fun new tool. And uh, as Matt said, we're going to be hopefully using this a lot. And uh, it'll be something for you to think about as you, as you go on and watch all these games. Now, before we switch over to our next topic, which I think is going to be fun, it's the best bad games of the season. We do want to take a moment to tell you about the Cut Forecast. It's the podcast from the staff of MB.com's Cut 4 section, which focuses on the lighter side of baseball. If you've made it this far into our podcast, we really think you'll enjoy it because it'll make you laugh, and you might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. Last week's episode ranked which New York Mets players look best wearing a romper and discussed the popular 90s TV that's made an unlikely comeback in MLB clubhouses. If that sounds like something you're into, search Cut Forecast, C-U-T, number four, C-A-S-T, in Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and click subscribe. Now, back to our kind of the same tool here. We're talking about this, like a pitcher versus hitter matchup. I kind of thought we could do the same thing and find the best, quote-unquote, bad games of the season. And I did this in two different ways, and I, I couldn't believe that Miguel Cabrera ended up topping the list in both of these. So basically— Wait, can you really not believe that, or it's actually very much fits the— Well, I thought he'd be at the top. I didn't think he'd literally be the top. That's fair, because we're only talking about specific games here. Let me define what I mean by the best bad game. Uh, you, you can go 0 for 4 in a lot of different ways. You can go 0 for 4 because you struck out four times. You can go 0 for 4 because you had four swinging bunts or weak tap-outs. Or you can also crush the baseball and find no success about it. That's one of the most beautiful things about the weird game that we all love. So I looked for every baseball game this season where a hitter had at least four plate appearances with zero hits and put at least three of those balls in play. So to you know, get rid of all the strikeouts and everything. Uh, the game I found with the highest expected batting average that had a zero actual batting average, Miguel Cabrera, earlier this month, September 1st, he had a 764 expected batting average in that game, uh, but he did not actually get any hits. And when I looked at some of these, these hits, I, uh, the batted balls anyway, I thought they were pretty interesting. He hit three batted balls, 100.7 miles an hour, 103.6 miles an hour, 106.4 miles an hour, none of which turned into a hit. Uh, two of them were lineouts, but my favorite one is the third one, a 94% hit probability that went 418 feet. I assume I don't have to tell you if that was a home game or not for the Tigers. <laughs> yeah, Comerica Park, it's... Um, it's if you've listened to this show, you know we're fascinated by it. It leads to all sorts of weird results. Um, it's something that we've sort of talked a lot about. And obviously the Tigers are now in 
in a re, in a rebuild, so it's a little bit less uh, in front of mind. But at least Miggy's season and his his weird sort of under under underwhelming season brings it back into the discussion, at least for the purposes of today. I just want to repeat that a 418 foot out. We have had home runs this year that were like 302 feet around the pesky pole. 418 foot for an out, which is absurd. Um, and then a couple other guys on this list, you know, Struble Cabrera had a 7.85 expected batting average. Michael Saunders had a 7.67. So, you know, these are just the kind of things you'll see in baseball. A guy performs well, but the, you know, outcome isn't there. And then I thought, okay, you know, batting average is a pretty fun start, but I want to go into expected weighted on base because that will account for, you know, for slugging and, and on base. Uh, the highest expected weighted on base with zero actual outcome, Miguel Cabrera, in a different game, he had an expected weighted on base of 8.85. On April 10, and I think this one is pretty fun too. The four batted balls he put into play that day, 101.8 miles an hour, 104.1, 108.2, 105.8. Those are four well-struck batted balls, uh, one of which was a, a ground out because he's not exactly fleet of foot, so he was thrown out. But one of these I also liked very much. The one that was hit 108 miles an hour at 30 degrees of launch angle, when a projected 390 feet, that is home run 89% of the time. <laughs> But not here. So basically, Miguel Cabrera could say, I had a couple of great days and went over. And I think that's at least, it, it's not entirely to blame for his down season, certainly, but it's it's something. Like, we've, we talked about him a lot being sort of unfortunate. In and it, even, I think last year, 2016, he had the widest gap between expected weight on base and actual weight on base. So even, and last year, he had a good year. So if he wasn't leader, I know he was, he was near the top. So, like, we, we already started to see when we first started looking at expected Outcomes, yeah. knowing, recognizing that Comerica was an outlier. I remember last year it was, I can't remember who was first and second, but it was him and Kendris Morales. Those were our, our top two last year. Um, so the fact that we're seeing again with him, but this year obviously the exit velocity was down a couple miles. He was 93.6 last year on average. This year he's 91.1. He's had some back problems. His overall line, 249, 329, 399 with only 16 home runs. And he still owed a, at least $192 million. So it's, for a rebuilding club, he's, it's it's a weird it's a weird situation because he is an all time great hitter and he doesn't he's kind of untradeable so you just sort of feel like he's going to right well he's got the he's got two herniated discs he said he's been playing with all season he he told Jason Beck who is our Tigers.com beat reporter uh, this has bothered me since spring training it's been bothering me all year at some points I was feeling good and at some points I feel I can't go anymore so you know I guess that's at least something that where he knows what he has to work on and maybe he can come back to camp next year a little stronger but you know he's not going to get younger I still I still believe in him right I still see him hitting the ball hard I, I he's not I don't think he's going to be you know elite top five MVP Miggy that we've seen before but I still think he can hit Do you, do you see? So you're saying he's not Pujols, basically? Not yet. Because that's the that's sort of to me that's kind of the, the comp, right-handed hitter, yeah. first base DH type. Not yet. Like sort of like a lot, of, a lot of years left on this contract. Ask me that in three years. I I still have faith. You know, I think you know probably he sort of even uh, he says that he he even said he to get in better shape, and I think there's probably something there's probably something to, to that. He, um, he, he obviously carries a lot, carries around a fair amount of weight. Yeah, and and he said that in the, the Jason Beck yeah. story as well that you know I got heavier or something like that. So. I think yeah, trying to put a, as you, as you age and trying to put a little more emphasis on what exactly you know is your issue. I think it can work. I'm trying here. I like. I, I, I mean, love. I do, making. but I wanna... it also means it's going to happen. It's going to happen for a team that's probably not going to be good for a few years. So it's almost like it doesn't. Uh, that I it, it doesn't matter, but it's sort of it's going to it certainly changes the the arc of his career and sort of the narrative of his career. I don't want to say definitively this is the last time it'll happen because I can't remember if it happened after this. But he was one of the very last guys to sign an extension that didn't take effect. 
for like two more seasons afterward. Like he signed it in I think 2014 and it didn't take effect till 2016. And there's a long history of those not really working out. I don't know if we're ever going to see that again. Like it just, it doesn't seem to make much sense anymore. No, certainly not. <laughs> um, bonus, bonus best bad game. I was only just looking for 2017, but we'd have data going back to 2015. The bonus best bad game of the last three seasons is actually Daniel Murphy. Last season, April 28th against the Phillies, uh, he went over with a 599 expected batting average and expected weight on a base of over 1,000. Uh, that's because he had uh, all four balls hit at over 95 miles an hour, three of them at over 100 miles an hour, and they were all pretty much either Adam balls in the infield or just perfectly placed outfielders. I, it seemed like on the video the wind might have been blown in that day a little bit too. Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, you're 0 for 4, but you can say, well, I, I, I pretty much did what I could do. You know, <laughs> baseball doesn't always work out that way that you want it to, but as far as the, the skill component goes, it was, it was a decent day, I think. I have a theory about Daniel, Daniel Murphy that I think that I want to share, which is that um, of all the players, I think he personifies modern baseball better than anyone else for two reasons. One of which is, as we've discussed before in this, this podcast, you've probably heard us say or you've read about um, making a conscious decision to elevate the ball and basically turning himself into a, I don't want to say a power hitter, but like into a, a, a pull fly ball hitter and becoming a star hitter in the process. But the second reason is I think that, you know, when people talk about the reason for the rise in power, a big part of the reason is that teams, because they're better at shifting and because of... Uh, fewer balls in play. Fewer balls in play yeah. because of strikeouts, they're more willing to play guys at a position. And he's a perfect example of that as well because, like, when he came up, he was a hit first guy without really a position because the Mets had, he was a third baseman, the Mets had David Wright... And they're like, well, he doesn't have, they tried him left field, he was terrible. They put him at first base, he didn't have enough, at the time he didn't have enough power for first base, and they sort of like, okay, we're just going to force you to learn second base. The Mets weren't very good at the time. And he sort of just like, has been faking, he's turned into like an okay... He's competent, I guess is the word. But he's just like, he's playing out of position, and he's a perfect example of a guy who's like basically been thrust in a position he's not really suited for, simply for offense. So I think that like, when I think back of this era, to me, Daniel Murphy personifies it better than anyone else. No, you're absolutely right. A generation ago, he's a first baseman, so they don't have Zimmerman and Murphy on the right side of the infield. They've got Murphy at first base and, you know, some kind of light hitting, like maybe a D Gordon-esque kind of guy at second base. So I, I do think that is part of why we're seeing more home runs. Um, as we have obviously talked about, the postseason is going to start very soon. And I'm interested to see what effect we're going to see as far as the postseason pitcher usage goes. Now, last year, I think, other than the Cubs winning it all, the biggest story was probably how relievers were used differently, right? Like, especially in Cleveland, Andrew Miller would come in in the fifth inning, the sixth inning. And I do think it's fair to say that part of that was because the Cleveland rotation outside of Kluber was a little decimated at that point. So, you know, maybe Franco did that more than he wanted to. But I do think we're going to see a real sea change this year in terms of guys, pitchers, just not facing hitters a third time through. Because the data is so clear performance goes down the more times that you see uh, a hitter. And so I, I pulled up the numbers starting in 1969, which is when divisional play came in. And an average of 16 plate appearances from 1969 to 2015 were a hitter seeing a pitcher for the third time. It is an ag- exactly equal number in 1973 as it was in 2015. So ups and downs, we didn't really see any difference. It had never dropped below 14%. Last year, suddenly 9.9%. <laughs> And I, I think, you know, we've been talking about this in certain circles for years and years, but last year was the first time we actually saw it. And it wasn't just Cleveland, right? We saw this, you know, we saw the Dodgers. We saw Kenley Jansen in the eighth. We saw Kershaw relieving Jansen. Like, you can think about pitchers in a different way in October. Yeah, the Cubs did it too, um, particularly in, um, even in Game 7 of the World Series. Obviously, it's a little bit extreme, but, you know, they took Hendrick out after, what, like four innings and Lester came in. And so, but I, this postseason, um, Indians being a prime example because we know they're going to do it, although their starting rotation is so good, they've got like a... 
Uh, well, now, now they have Mike Clevenger, who is a really good starter. He's in the bullpen now. He's another guy that you can bring in for like you know three innings after four and a third or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think the teams are going to preemptively do it. I don't think they're going to be like, okay, two times of the order, you're out. But I think the hook is going to be very quick third time to the order in a way that we probably haven't seen before, at least for, for a lot of teams. Uh, so let's just explain you know, what the third time through the order uh, means. And I think a lot of people think of it as innings or pitches, and, and I don't really like looking at it that way because you know the number of pitches isn't the same for everybody, and uh, the number of innings, it's kind of dependent on how successful you are in getting through those innings. I like looking at it in terms of uh, times through the order because you think about it, obviously it's fatigue as you go through the order. Maybe you're not as sharp hitting your spots, your velocity is down. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're getting a little more familiarity from the players. So uh, I looked at this. This is for this season only. Starting pitchers going through a lineup for the first time, a lot of 314 uh, weighted on base, striking out 22% and uh, allowing a 33.3 hard hit percent. The second time through, that weighted on base jumps from 314 to 332. That's pretty big. Strikeout percentage drops from 22.5 to 20.3. And hard hit percentage jumps from 33.3 to 33.8. Then the third time through, it jumps to a 339 weighted on base. Another two-point drop on the strikeout rate. And hard hit percentage jumps from 33.8 up to 34.7. It's almost indisputable that the deeper you go into a game, the worse you're going to get. And obviously, there are outliers. You can say, well, you can point to, here's Max Scherzer throwing a no-hitter and looking great in the ninth inning. There are always outliers. I'm talking about as a general trend here. And also, well, there, there's two, two points to make on top of that, one of which is a lot of the time when Max Scherzer is doing that, he's doing that in the regular season against a weak lineup. Right. And you're not going to see as many weak lineups in the postseason. Second of all is, on top of all that, what relievers do the first time through the lineup, which is better than anything starters do at all. I'm glad you asked. So a reliever... The first time through, and really it's almost always the first time through. You rarely see a reliever more than once, but I just looked at only the first time a reliever faces a hitter. Weighted on base is 309. Now, starting pitcher the first time was 314. Starting pitcher the second time is 339. So right away, you want that reliever, right? Or really, a reliever or a starter, but just the first time through. Uh, for comparisons, a hitter who is facing a starter for the third time, they produce like Robinson Cano. <laughs> a hitter facing a reliever for the first time produces like Jordy Mercer. That's a pretty big trade-off to me. Like, if you're a manager, you should always want that because by the time you get to the third time through as a starter, you have to stop thinking about it in terms of, like, well, I, I, this is a better pitcher because he's not the same guy at that point. You know, he's not the, the best version of himself. Yeah, no, he's a little tired. He's shown, he's shown all his pitches. They've seen him. Like, it's... It's, this has definitely been something that we've, in the postseason time and again, we've seen, you know, famously Pedro Martinez, famously Matt Harvey, where the pitcher, the, the manager was like, well, he's looked so good. Right. He's my guy. I got to leave him in. Matt, Matt, Matt Harvey in the ninth inning of that World Series game was only two years ago. And doesn't that feel like that was about 20 years ago? Just, uh, the, just the way things have progressed? <laughs> For sure. Like, I can't even comprehend that happening right now. Now, as we said, there are outliers. I do not think Corey Kluber is getting yanked in the third inning. Like, you know, barring disaster, Scherzer, Kershaw, these guys are going to go. These are the aces. You know, they're the ones that got you here. But I think when you think about the teams like third best starter, the fourth best starter, like if you have uh, Alex Wood or Brad Peacock, you're not going to send them out there and say, okay, I need eight innings from you. Like, you're just not. I don't even think that should be the goal. And I pulled some of the numbers here. Uh, Brad Peacock, for example, as a starting pitcher this year, has a lot of 185 weighted on base the first time through, which is phenomenal. Second time, 314, about league average. Third time, 426. Now, why would you want him out there that third I time? Mean, you the, never would. To me, the Astros are the most interesting team to watch from pitcher usage in the postseason because they are considered a forward-thinking team with a manager who is in sync with the front office and what the front office wants. And obviously, Jeff Luno and his front office crew has this information, is aware of this information, would like to implement this information. They have Justin Verlander, Dallas Keuchel, two obvious starters who are going to get to at least 
go through a lineup twice. You know, given a chance, if pitching well, we'll get a chance to go through a lineup third time. Sure. No question. But after that, the Astros probably should be a Johnny Holstaff kind of team where no one's should be. You know, I'm talking like in a in a let's play stratomatic baseball kind of world, yeah. whatever. They should be a team that guys are only no 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 pitchers pitching more than two, maybe three innings at a time. Yeah, after after uh, Verlander and Keiko, I don't even really care who starts. Like, who comes in first, or, I, that makes no difference to me whatsoever. Because, And I know we haven't seen the roster yet. Maybe not all these guys will fit on the roster. But you look at games three and four, and I, I think of Peacock and McCullers and Morton and Fires and Musgrove and Davinsky. I want all those guys giving me, like, nine outs, right? Whatever order works, I, I don't care. But that's I shouldn't expect anybody to go six innings. Yeah, and what, what, will, what will be interesting to see is if, like, if the Astros have some sort of de facto, like, piggyback set up where they, they say, like, okay, we know, like, we're going to – we want – Davinsky and McCullers to pitch together, and we want maybe because they think that like giving different looks, if the pitch, if they think the pitchers kind of have a different feel and will um, kind of mess up with hitters' timing. I don't, I don't know, but there is they, they have enough depth that they actually could set it up in a way where they sort of have like mini staffs, like okay, you guys, you know, they've got their long men for one. This is my group of long men for game three. This is my group of long men for game four, and then these are the short men all the way through. Because remember, we had the extra days off, so you don't need to worry as much about. Um, your short man pitch. I mean, Ken Giles can pitch in every game, basically. Right. Uh, right. I don't think seeing a short start from a, a starter should be seen as a failure unless he's getting lit up so much as it is the plan. And um, I'm really interested in David Price, right? Because David Price, I know he's got this huge contract. Everybody's like, well, he should be your ace. It doesn't matter right now. The, the contract is irrelevant at this point. Uh, as a starter this year, his first time through, 256 weighted on base. That's awesome. He looked great the other night. He's throwing like 96, 97. Uh, the second time through, 340. I mean, that's almost a 100-point difference in weighted on base. And I know I'm only looking at, at numbers for this season. The career numbers are a little different. But, you know, the, the point stands. If you are not the same guy the second time through, and if you have a David Price and you can bring him in, wonderful. Well, this is another reason why this might be the most interesting series is David Price <laughs> right. as like a as, as a kind of classic fireman role. The question with him is because he's used to being a starter and his coming up injury is if he can pitch every day or in how many can he pitch in two games in a series? Can he pitch in three games in a series? And, you know, that's... And it's in, I'm talking about the DS. Like, will he be able to pitch in three games? Or is he only going to be limited? You know, that's because he is, gives them a weapon, the Red Sox weapon, that kind of can change the dynamic of a series if he can come in in two inning spurts and uh, to set up Kimbrel. Yeah, I, I will say it's going to be interesting to see. There's a there's a, a very cool combination of like, you know, new school teams like the Astros, like the Dodgers, you know, Francona, and then uh, and Cubs as well, and then Dusty Baker in Washington. Very old school, but he's been very successful. So, and he's got Scherzer. He's not going to do this. But uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily the wrong thing. It's just kind of kind of fun to see two different philosophies going at one another. For sure. Another another play, a pitcher you mentioned here, I think is also interesting, is um, Tanaka, who has a 304 weight on base, first time through, through 357, second time through 333, third time through. I I think he's most interesting. Obviously, it matters if the Yankees get past the wild card. Well, they could still win the division, but depending on where they end up, um, I'm guessing Severino probably starts the wild card. He is almost certainly going to start. Anyway, because my point is, like, the Yankees go farther. The Yankees probably have the deepest bullpen. So with a guy like Tanaka. Yeah, you, you follow him up with two innings from Chad Green, <laughs> and here comes Tommy Conley, and here comes Batances and Chapman and all these guys. Like, that's they awesome. even mentioned him, Robertson. It's, it's, that's how deep they are. I forgot about So, like, Tanaka, Robertson. that's a team where it's like, okay, Tanaka, you know, really short leash, and just let the bullpen ride. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm really interested to see how this is going to go cuz like we said last year it really felt like that was the year changed and was last year a fluke or the beginning of a new world. I'm betting on the latter. Anyway, 
Let's go induct Jose Altuve into the Hall of Fame. And uh, this has nothing to do with his potential MVP candidacy. He had a really interesting day on Sunday night. He set two stat cast records in the span of three innings, which is fantastic. So the one that was most notable, he set a new home to first record. Uh, in the fifth inning, he had a bunt single, and he went from home to first in 3.33 seconds, which is the fastest home to first ever. Obviously, bunts are almost always going to be faster. If you watch the video, he was already moving by the time he, he made contact with the ball. But I just love the idea that a right-handed hitter could be the fastest home to first. Although it got me thinking that like maybe on a bunt, if you watch the play, the timing is so perfect. He's basically like, he like basically has like his left foot over home like he's already like past home plate like his foot never touches the ground but it's like the timing is perfect and it actually makes you wonder like in some ways for a righty particularly if you're doing a push punt it's almost more natural and easier to get out of the box because you're already like in that direction in that direction as opposed like a, to like an Ichiro kind of like, thing like a, a drag bunt for a lefty is like a little bit a little bit awkward although the previous lowest I think was at least this season the previous was uh, yeah it was. Um, Adam Eaton, the lefty. Well, that was last season, but yeah. That was last season. Then this year was Ruggie Odor, I think. I believe so, yeah. So, but, I mean, 3.33 seconds, that feels like about as quick as anyone can do it. And I guess anything that's not Hamilton or Buxton, I'll always say, I guess somebody can do it faster. I can't imagine we're going to we're gonna break this record a lot, right? It seems like the I mean, lower it was, level. It was a tenth of a second faster than the previous record. Yeah. I'd, I'd say it's, it's a, it was a pretty perfect uh, set of circumstances. And uh, I think you looked up. We don't have the number Sandy, but he is like by far the most infield hits, right? Isn't this part of why his, his batting average is... He leads, he, leads, he leads the majors in infield hits. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's going to be interesting when we talk about his, uh, his MVP candidacy. And then uh, <laughs> the same game in the eighth inning, he also set a record on a 4-3 ground out. He set a record in the three seasons we've been tracking StatCast for the deepest starting position by a second baseman on a 4-3 ground out. He was... 191 feet away from home plate and if you look at it he's like basically directly behind home plate you know starting from the from uh, if you put a line from home plate through second base then he's like well beyond that he's basically in short center field this should be noted that uh, <laughs> Albert Pujols was the hitter here we know that Albert Pujols is not exactly uh, the speediest man in baseball this year and I actually looked at the uh, the longest or the deepest second base starting position on a 4-3 well, Altuve has two of them. They came in that same game against uh, against Pujols, and Pujols was the batter for the top three. So 191 by Altuve, and then uh, earlier this year, Robinson Cano was 183 feet deep on a very similar play. Altuve also in the same game, 183 feet deep. It, you know, the other guys in this list, Jose Abreu, Michael Waka is a pitcher. You can do this when you're not really afraid that someone's going to burn you down the line with foot speed. Um, I just thought that was interesting. You should really watch the play if you haven't seen it just to see where Altuve is. And when you think about the shift, this is the Minute Maid Park, as we talked about earlier, has that really short fence in left field. So when you think of like Correa and Altuve are basically playing in the short, and like they're like 15 feet into the outfield, yeah. and you've got the left fielder in front of the Crawford box. There's basically nowhere for Pools to hit the ball. Yeah. If he doesn't hit a home run. Well, like, that, this goes back to what we were saying. I do think the shift is part of why we're seeing more home runs. It's not just selecting for more powerful little infielders. It's guys like Pools who saying, listen, I'm doomed. If I put it on the ground, forget about it. I might as well strike out. So really all I can do is hit home runs. So I, I must try to hit as many home runs as I possibly can. But you're right. I don't know who was playing left field that day, but I, he must have been about 15 feet behind the shortstop. <laughs> so anyway, welcome to the Hall of Fame, Altuve. Uh, I thought that was a pretty fun combination of things we're probably not likely to see again in the same game. Uh, so that's our show for this week. We'll catch you next week after the wild cards. This is the MLB.com StockCast podcast. <laughs>